Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Walter Lohman. I'm director of the Asian Studies Center here at the, Heritage, uh, at the Heritage Foundation. I really appreciate all of you coming out. Thank you. I particularly want to thank Russell Shao and GTI, Global Taiwan Institute, for partnering with us on this program today. I'm so glad we could work, work this out. Um, you know, there was, uh, there was a little election over the weekend. I don't know if everyone noticed, but uh, judging by the turnout, perhaps you, perhaps you did. Um, you know, at the outset here, I just wanted to say a couple words about the, the elections in Taiwan on Saturday, uh, just a couple, and then turn it over to our, our guests and our panel speakers to offer some real advice on it, some real uh, insight. Um, first of all, I think that the election says more about Taiwan than it says about anything else. And I only highlight that because I think we all are immediately moving to what this means for China. You know, for all practical purposes, all practical purposes, Taiwan is really not a part of China. So why do we move immediately to talk about what this means for China? What it means most is that Taiwan values the same things that the rest of the free world values. It's conducted its seventh presidential election, free election, its ninth LY election. It's a major accomplishment. In fact, it's getting to be such a, such a normal thing that it barely even merits congratulations anymore, because we have an election too every four years, every two years, uh, midterm elections, and the world doesn't congratulate us on having made this great achievement. But it's become commonplace in Taiwan, and it's become commonplace because they value the same things we do. I think the elections do hold a message uh, for China, um, and it's more than just one country, two systems, and all that, which does get back to some of those, those fundamental issues. Um, what it says to China is that it needs to take a new approach um, uh, to Taiwan, one that recognizes where people in Taiwan are on matters of Taiwan sovereignty and Taiwan's relationship um, with China. Um, will they do that? I mean, we'll hear from our guests in that regard. I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, skeptical that they will. Uh, because I think in Beijing, there's an attitude that they can sort of predict the future, that they understand the waves of history, and that somehow history and economics will vindicate them in, in the long run. I, I think it's actually a, a sort of an intellectually arrogant way to look at the future. Um, what they need to do is look close, more closely at the demographics and at the trends in Taiwan. Um, and despite all odds that they will not do that. I really hope they will. Um, the third thing I think that this um, election um, holds, uh, it holds lessons for U.S.-Taiwan relations going forward. I think it offers some, some new opportunities. Uh, the Tsai Ing-wen's 
reelection and uh, her position now in the LY, although slightly diminished, I think give an opportunity uh, for the U.S. and Taiwan to move forward on some things, in particular move forward on a free trade agreement, which I would say should be the number one um, priority uh, in the relationship uh, going forward here right out of the gates, out of the election, because it coincides with some opportunity that's been created on the U.S. side. So we've got a terrific group of people to talk to us about this uh, today, and we're going to start out with Congressman Ted Yoho. Uh, Ted Yoho is a congressman from Florida representing the 3rd District, which he has done for, for seven years. But um, more relevant to our task today, I think, is the fact that he's ranking member on the House Subcommittee on Foreign Affairs related to Asia and Pacific. Um, congressman Yoho has been a terrific friend and ally of the Heritage Foundation, as I know he has been to many of the think tanks here in Washington that focus on Asia generally, but uh, specifically on Taiwan. Um, I don't know if you've heard this news, but uh, Congressman Yoho actually, in his final um, in his final term, because remarkably, he is keeping a pledge that he made when he was elected that he would uh, he would term limit himself. I think that's a terrific achievement, and I, I'm I'm proud of him uh, for for having done that. But having worked with him a little bit over the last few years, I can tell you one year is plenty of time for him to make trouble. So uh, I'm sure he'll have a lot to do this coming year, and I'm sure he'll go out very strong. So we're very happy to have him here today to talk to us about the significance of the elections and what it holds in store for U.S.-Taiwan relations. Congressman Yoho. Walter, I appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to get a water ready here to my Taiwanese friends, Ni Hao, and hello to Ambassador Stanley Kao, who we've developed a great relationship. We appreciate your hospitality on everything that we've asked and we've done with you. You've always been there uh, with Taiwan, and we appreciate it. Um, so uh, happy new year to everybody. I want to start off. Um, just saying congratulations to Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen for winning re-election. Her election Saturday speaks volumes on Taiwan's future. By winning with the largest margin ever recorded and beating her opponent by more than 18 points, it sends a very clear message of where Taiwan and the people of Taiwan stand. They stand for liberty and freedom and democracy with no interference from any nation. President Tsai is the modern Ronald Reagan of the Asia region. Unfortunately, China appears to dismiss President Tsai's victory and her offer. And that offer is to start a dialogue with Beijing on conditions that Taiwan's sovereignty and democracy are to be respected. China's, Taiwan's affairs office reiterated that dialogue must be predicated on the acknowledgement that Taiwan is part of one China and China's commitment to applying the one country, two systems formula that is trying to be currently used to govern Hong Kong as a semi-autonomous territory. Now keep in mind the protests in Hong Kong have brought about a devastation to the Hong Kong economy and world standing and it's changed the narrative of a safe international hub for doing business Business travel, business, travel, and tourism have declined precipitously during the past seven months 
and unless things change in Hong Kong, they will continue. And it'll take years for that economy to recover. China has to be wondering if that effort to take control of the judicial system and to dishonor the 50-year agreement that they had made between Great Britain and China was worth it. It was Beijing's growing influence in the legal system and the performance to handle the protests in Hong Kong that undoubtedly energized the Taiwanese people and the opposition to the proposal of a one country, two system. China would be wise to apply the lessons they are learning, they are actively learning in Hong Kong to further actions against Taiwan. That is, if you threaten one's freedom, democracy, and sovereignty, there will be a huge cost paid. Keep in mind the people of Hong Kong and much of the, real, and much of the world, they realize that Hong Kong is a province of China. I mean, that's pretty well written. That was in the agreement in 1997 by Great Britain and, and China. By the people that made that commitment, there was no question. Hong Kong is a province of China. Taiwan is not and has never been part of the PRC or the Chinese Communist Party. You guys know the history of how Taiwan formed when Shanghai Shek left and went to the, uh, they fought the Civil War, they lost, and they left to Taiwan and developed a new nation. It's the vague policy, and I blame our country and the, uh, some of our leaders, the policy of President Nixon and Carter and Henry Kissinger that have allowed the one country, two system cloud, that confusing cloud um, of confusion to be maintained for too long. And it's time to clarify this uh, confusion before China's action escalates more tension in the region and gets to a flashpoint that we don't want to see, as they did in Hong Kong, with the now infamous and misguided extradition law before it's too late. This is something that nobody wants. We've seen enough conflict in this world. I'm 65 years, well, I'm not quite, but I'll be 65 in April, and I've seen enough conflict. This is something that we should work together through diplomacy so that nations can prosper. And if nations prosper, their people prosper. If their people prosper, we're all safer. Um, China has accused uh, President Tsai and her party of stealing the victory with populist policies, smears against political rivals, and fear-mongering against China. They've also contributed the result of foreign interference, particularly the United States. This is so false. It's their action. And, um, you know, we got singled out along with uh, Senator Rubio, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi, and myself as the ones that were causing the dissent in Hong Kong. The blame for that falls strictly on Beijing with the extradition law that they pushed through. And we've written about this, and I meant to bring some pictures that I don't have. The people of Hong Kong have experienced freedom and liberty. They've had that for over 70 years. And unfortunately, the people from China, of the Communist Party, and Xi Jinping, the Politburo, and the PLA, which I have coined the CCPC, the Chinese Communist Party complex, they've never experienced freedom and liberty. And when you try to take that away from somebody, it's just a force of nature that says, no, we will not be suppressed. 
Again, President Tsai said she is willing to have dialogue with China if there is respect for Taiwan's sovereignty and democracy. That's all they're asking. President Tsai is also wise to pivot to the South for economic diversification, and that's kind of what I want to talk about. Where do we go from here? The people of Taiwan have spoken very succinctly, very clearly, that they want to have their sovereignty, self-governance. And so President Tsai, to pivot to the South, to increase diplomatic relations with all countries, diversification, and investments uh, with other countries so that they're not solely dependent on China. And we, countries in the free world, should continue to increase Taiwan's world acceptance in the form of dip diplomatic acceptance and re-entry into the world organizations like the World Health Assembly and the UN. We're one of the first, I know, in, our, in, in, in Congress when um, Beijing forced Taiwan out of the WHA, the World Health Assembly, and said that they couldn't be represented there independently. We said, this is not right. Taiwan has contributed so much to the world of health, you know, with the SARS epidemic, and they're going to continue to do that. And these are things that they know no borders. When you get into epidemiology and, and diseases, they know no borders. So we want all hands on deck. And for one country to say, you can't participate is wrong. One cannot anticipate or believe that Xi Jinping will change his policies. For him to do so would be admitting a mistake. And in China, Xi Jinping never makes a mistake. He can't afford to. That would show weakness. And he can't afford to, as I said, especially in lieu of the elections within a couple years. Yet she and the CCPC, the Chinese Communist Party complex, would be wise to accept Taiwan's willingness. Understand this. Accept the willingness of the status quo and respect their sovereignty. China has nothing to gain by trying to unify Taiwan to the mainland. However, they have much to lose. It'll force an international backlash with countries and companies wanting to divest from China. I mean, I see that so clearly. You see that already in Hong Kong. I've got businesses that said, well, we, we were in Hong Kong or we were thinking about expanding, but we're not now. And that's for a, an area that people agree is a province of China. It'll force an international backlash, like I said, and these companies will want to divest from China. If China accepts the status quo, that Taiwan is a sovereign and self-governing democracy, they, Taiwan and the world, will all benefit. Xi and China would gain much respect to accept President Tsai's offer and to leave them alone. And with that, I'm going to conclude my remarks, and I appreciate you all letting me come by and talk. Um, I just feel very strongly about this, and I know as we talk to people from around the world, we've got our manufacturers looking to do the ABC model, and that's any, manufacture anywhere but China because of the suppression, repression, and um, the lack of following the rule of law. And this is something that will continue until China chooses to change their tactics. We can't force China to do anything. I don't want to. But I think we as democracies around the world, we can have actions changed by the way we choose to do business and whom we choose to do business. So again, I want to congratulate President Tsai for winning a resounding election.
look forward to her leadership, looking forward to working with uh, Ambassador Cow, and uh, thank you all for letting me come by and participate. Yeah, I'll be happy to. And we've got time for one or two questions in the audience, right down in front. We'll get you a microphone. Morning, Congressman. Uh, this is Tina Chung with Voice of America's Chinese Morning. branch. Yeah. Uh, after this election, we're seeing that the Chinese Foreign Ministry uh, uh, sending a very strong message urging the world community to adhere to the One China principle. But do you see, uh, after Taiwan, uh, people uh, sending a message to the world that they want to stand in the uh, you know, uh, democratic uh, side of, of the world, um, do you see the uh, international community uh, starting to uh, open up with, after Secretary Pompeo sending his message, congratulatory message, you see uh, in, uh, some more countries open up and uh, to be more uh, openly supporting Taiwan. I think, you, I think we will see that. I truly believe that. And if you look at, at Hong Kong, it's a, a province of, you know, pushing 8 million people. 25% of those people are coming out. And protesting because of the the, uh, the removal of the freedom and liberty, I have I have a, a set of pictures I didn't bring, but I can describe them to you. I've got a blade of grass, and I've got an asphalt road. And if I were to ask you which one's stronger, you could look at them. I mean, the asphalt is hard and it can crush the grass, but when you see grass growing and pushing through asphalt, which is more powerful? What that represents is freedom and liberty. That can't, you can't suppress that. That's an innate ability or trait that all humans have, that they want to be free. And um, China doesn't have enough people or enough money to suppress freedom. And so I think you'll see countries and companies further expand, is my prediction in the future, to Taiwan. And if China is smart, they would accept and, and respect the offer President Tsai. She's not looking for independence. She just wants to be left alone, as her people do. And I think that they would be well served if they did that. China has already benefited so much from what Taiwan, as the world has. So why would you want to rock the boat? You've seen what's happening in Hong Kong. When those numbers come out, you're going to see a huge drop in their productivity, their GDP. And uh, I think other countries will recognize that. Take one more. Other questions? Hi, Chia Ching with United Day News Group Taiwan. Congressman, you've argued that it's time to recognize Taiwan as a country. Uh, will you push U.S. to recognize Taiwan or dual recognition, both China and Taiwan? Thank you. We have, and we've continued to do that, and we're going to continue to do that. You know, and again, if you go back to, to the foundation and when um, um, Shanghai Shek, when they fought the war, he was the ruler of uh, China after World War II. He was the ruler there. Then uh, they had the conflict with the, uh, the, the communists. He lost. They brought the uh, KMT to Taiwan. They formed their own nation. Since that time, they've got their own flag, their own economy, their own form of government, their own national anthem, their own military, and they're an economic powerhouse. You know, I think they're our 11th largest trading partner. And um, again, if China was smart, they would not cause disruption where they can't win. 
I mean, they, yeah, they could overpower Taiwan. They could do that. But is that really going to pay to their benefit and play to their benefit long term? Or is that going to cause not just a regional conflict? Do you think other Western democracies are going to sit still and watch, you know, a uh, 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 democracy in that part of the region that's not causing anybody any problems? They're benefiting. They're contributing. Are we all going to sit around and watch that being taken away? That's the question they need to ask their Politburo. And um, Xi Jinping can save face by changing policies. That'll be his decision. I know where this country will probably stand. You know, we've got the Taiwan's Relation Acts that's 40 years into the making. We had a, a visit by President Tsai. Uh, we're honored to be able to sit with her up in New York, right next to her during that dinner. And I think you're going to see that happen more around the world. And I think you'll see other countries come and reopen relationships with Taiwan. We're at a point, and we're in the 21st century, uh, we don't need to conquer nations. We need to expand nations and expand trade and focus on those things that make us all stronger. So thank you. Thank you very Walter, much. Walter, great to see you, and thank you for letting me come Take by. Care. Yes, sir. That was terrific. Um, particularly good analogy with grass and concrete. I'm going to remember that one. That's a really poignant uh, and very applicable to your daily suburban life. So, uh, so, I, so I really like that uh, analogy. Uh, well, it gives me great pleasure and, and, and honor now to uh, bring to the stage Stanley Gao. Stanley is Taiwan's representative to the United States, where he has been for about four years now. Um, you can be forgiven if uh, it seems like much longer than 40 years, because I think some of us have known Stanley for a long time, because he's represented Taiwan for some 40 years in the Foreign Service in Switzerland, Malaysia, Hungary, many headquarter posts, and in fact, other stints here in Washington in the past. Uh, he brings a tremendous amount of wisdom to this to this job and stability, and he's been uh, an excellent representative here in Washington and interlocutor for all of us who are interested in Taiwan issues. So with that, let me invite Stanley to come to the stage and offer his remarks. Well, thank you very much for, for having me, uh, Walter. I think, uh, first of all, immediately after the election results became official, in addition to the State Department's warm and encouraging uh, message of congratulations, there's uh, one particular gentleman I just tweeted, uh, Secretary Mike Pompeo. And he tweeted, uh, I quote, the United States congratulates Dr. Tsai Ing-wen on her re-election in Taiwan's presidential election, Taiwan once again demonstrates the strength of its robust democratic system. Thank you, President Tsai, for your leadership in developing a strong U.S. partnership, unquote. And we thank him, Secretary Pompeo, and on Taiwan's robust democratic system and President Tsai Ing-wen's leadership in developing the U.S. partnership, we could not agree with him more. And here, Congressman Yoho, I'd like to also take this opportunity to thank you very much for some of the most gracious and powerful messages of support. I mean, uh, this, is, uh, this brought me back to 
when in March 2019, right here on this stage at Harris Foundation, Congressman Yoho joined Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado and chaired by Dr. Ed Forner in a video conference with President Tsai Ing-wen when she was transiting through Honolulu, Hawaii, and I was sitting beside her. And the conversation you know, was so, so lively, and so enjoyable, so inspiring and stimulating. And again, six months ago, July 2019, Congressman Yoho would travel from Washington to New York and beat the crazy traffic in midtown Manhattan and met with her in the Big Apple and also attended a gala dinner, a gala dinner where Tsai Ing-wen received a major gift from the National Endowment of Democracy and the Freedom House for her outstanding leadership in defending Taiwan's sovereignty, democracy, political freedom, civil liberties, and human rights. And just to mind you, because of all these great American organizations, NGOs, for what they have been doing, the right things they have been doing, National Endowment, Freedom House, and there's a couple of others being blacklisted by China. And just yesterday, Mr. Kenneth Roth of the Human Rights Watch was denied entry in Hong Kong, again, because of what this organization been doing something right. So, uh, this uh, brought us to a very important uh, issue here. And uh, we always believe that any proud country, United States, Taiwan, big or small, just like any proud individual, men and women in this room, if you don't stand for something, you're far from anything. And this is what the January 11 election in Taiwan were all about. And equally, this is what the robust U.S.-Taiwan relations are about. It's about a celebration of the victory of democracy in action, a triumph of a vibrant civil society, embracing freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, market economy, fair and free trade, the rule of law, and abiding respect for human rights and human dignity, and regional peace and stability. And those are our, our shared core values and beliefs and our common interest, by all means. And as the Congressman Yoho rightly pointed out, in some corners of the world, democracy may be in recession or in retreat. But given the extremely precarious situation in Hong Kong, in Tibet, even the Muslim Kulak in Xinjiang, and the millions of underground Christians, what they have to go through in China, the 23 million men and women on Taiwan stay the course at the forefront, persistent and resilient, pushing back day in and day out. This intimidation, infiltration, bullying, 
and Orwellian nonsense from an 800-pound Colossus, distant cousin, across the street. However, in President Tsai Ing-wen's post-election speech, she kept her calm, her cool, her usual non-provocative, non-confrontational approach, calling for a resumption of constructive exchange between two sides of the Taiwan Strait based on the principle of peace, parity, democracy, and a dialogue with no coercion and no political precondition. So on January 11th, Taiwan citizens have their voice, have their choice clearly made, and their voice unequivocally heard through a transparent and peaceful process, and once again prove that democracy works and works well in Taiwan, in such a Chinese-speaking Taiwan. It is absolutely Taiwan's biggest asset and strength. And this brings me back to one of my favorite old sayings, that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. No, we never take democracy or Taiwan's democratic success story for granted. But it is also about this overwhelming bipartisan support and unwavering commitments of the American people, the US Congress, the American government, and each one of you in this room, and the numerous others, those key, these are firm believers and key drivers, so that Taiwan could become a democracy as it is today, and remain a vital and reliable partner. Rest assured that Taiwan will continue to join the US and all like-minded countries in protecting, pursuing our shared core values, beliefs, and common interests. Yes, Taiwan can help. And we're always punch above its weight to help. And thank you very much. Okay, with that, I'd like to invite Russell Shaw, Executive Director of the Global Taiwan Institute, to the stage in, in his, his panel. He, uh, Russell has assembled a representative panel of uh, some of the most authoritative opinion on U.S.-Taiwan relations uh, uh, imaginable, uh, reps from uh, Project 2049, CSIS, and George Washington University, all longtime experts in their field. Uh, so with this, I'll turn it over to Russell, and he'll guide us through a conversation on the Taiwan election results. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Good, oh, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Russell Shell. I am the executive director of the Global Taiwan Institute. On behalf of GTI, I, I just want to first thank Congressman Ted Yoho um, and Ambassador Stanley Gao for those exceptional, clear, and inspirational remarks, and I think they really help to set the stage for the discussion that we are about to have. I would also like to express my appreciation to Walter Lohman and the Heritage Foundation for co-hosting today's event with GTI. Uh, GTI is a 501c3 think tank dedicated exclusively to Taiwan policy research. 
we actually have a special issue of our bi-weekly publication, The Global Taiwan Brief, that will be released this Wednesday, written by some of our advisors uh, and in-house analysts, providing their assessments on the opportunities and challenges for U.S.-Taiwan relations in 2020. So if you're not already subscribed to receive all our updates, you may do so on our website at www.globaltaiwan.org. Now, in the interest of time, I will dispense with a lengthy introduction, but I do want to highlight a few points. <clears throat> As alluded to earlier uh, by Walter, this, this, the elections that were held over this weekend uh, were Taiwan's seventh direct presidential elections, its 10th legislative UN election, and there have been three peaceful transfer of executive power since the country held its first direct presidential election in 1996. The island democracy also has a voter participation rate that is the envy of any democracy, new and old. I believe the voter participation rate of this election that was just held was 74.9%. Now, with all the votes, votes tallied, uh, President Tsai Ing-wen has been re-elected re president of Taiwan by a significant margin of 18.5%, or 2.65 million votes. The people in the only liberal democracy in the Chinese-speaking world has handed her and her Democratic Progressive Party another four years as the president and the majority control of the legislative yuan. Indeed, the 2020 general elections are significant. Uh, but while President Tsai's victory is resounding, the path there has been far from smooth and guaranteed. I think from a dramatic defeat of her party in the November 2018 elections, local elections, that was interpreted by observers as a referendum on her personally, to dealing with an unprecedented contested primary for her for, for an incumbent president, she emerged as a favorite candidate to win the 2020 presidential election and succeeded. Now, what may have contributed to her electoral success and what are the implications of the election's results. The focus of our discussion today will be on the latter. Uh, but let me just point out three factors that I think we can go into more detail, either in the discussion or in the Q&A, uh, if people are interested. interested. But I think those are, there are three probably issues that stand out that contribute to the electoral outcome. First, sovereignty as a focal point. Second, a split opposition party. And third, turnout of youths. Now, the, uh, the results uh, in terms of the demographic of voters are not, I haven't seen the results yet, but given the, um, the high turnout rate, I think it's suggested that there was a, uh, that the youth uh, did go out and vote. Now we have an all-star cast of uh, analysts and strategic thinker uh, to really parse the results and analyze what those results mean in terms of cross-strait relations, in terms of US-Taiwan relations, and also for possible U.S. policy responses. Now, to my immediate left, uh, we have Bonnie Glazer, who is a senior advisor for Asia and the director of the China Power Project at CSIS, where she works on issues related to Asia-Pacific security with a focus on Chinese foreign and security policy. Prior to joining CSIS, uh, she, was also, she served as a consultant for various U.S. government offices, including departments of defense as well as state. Uh, to her left, we have Dr. Robert Sutter, who is the pre pre professor of practice 
of International Affairs. Don't confuse you, Tim. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Sorry. No. To, the, to my far left, we have Professor Robert Sir, who is a professor of practice of international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. Now, Professor Sutter has published 22 books, over 300 articles, several hundred government reports dealing with contemporary East Asian and Pacific affairs. I challenge anyone in this room who pays attention to Asia policy, Taiwan policy, who has claimed that they can have not read Professor Sutter's work. I'm sure all of us have. Um, and, uh, and Professor Sutter has served as the uh, specialist and director of the Foreign Affairs um, and National Defense Division of the Congressional Research Service, as well as the, Nas as the National Intelligence Officer for East Asia uh, in the U.S. government. Last but not least, uh, we have Mark Stokes, um, who is the executive director of the Project 2049 Institute. Uh, in addition to his focus on Taiwan policy issues, Mark is a leading expert on the Chinese People Liberation's Army Rocket Force and Strategic Support Force, its defense industries, and military political leadership. Uh, Mark has served in a variety of military and private sector positions, including serving 20 years in the U.S. Air Force, uh, where he worked on intelligence planning and policy. Um, also, uh, between 1997 and 2004, he served as Senior Country Director for China and Taiwan in the Office of Secretary of Defense. And so, I think you all agree, we have an incredible lineup of speakers. Uh, they've been each assigned um, specific topics to address. Uh, and we will leave some time at the end uh, for a, a moderated discussion as well as audience Q&A. So I'd like to first start off with Bonnie, if you can please uh, address the issue of Beijing's reactions and the implication for cross-strait relations. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Russell and uh, Walter, for inviting me to participate in the, in the panel today. Uh, very timely, obviously, as I think everybody, now that we've gotten on the other side of the election, is very much interested uh, in the implications. So um, uh, there have been several authoritative reactions out of Beijing. The one that I've paid uh, closest attention to is the statement out of the Taiwan Affairs Office. Um, and if you read it, you will find that there are references uh, to all of the right phrases that China always uses when it talks about cross-strait relations. Uh, one country, two systems, one China principle, 1992 consensus, opposition to Taiwan independence. There's one phrase um, that I think is particularly important, and that is that Ma Xiaoguang, the spokesperson, said the peaceful development of cross-strait relations is the right path to promote uh, cross-strait uh, ties and common development. This is, in fact, the policy that Xi Jinping inherited from Hu Jintao. And one can say that it's almost remarkable that given the, uh, the more assertive and at times aggressive policies that China has pursued all over the world, not just against Taiwan, uh, this policy is one that Xi Jinping has adhered to. The tactics, of course, have gotten much tougher. Uh, but the question, of course, is, is this a placeholder as China sit, assesses and discusses internally their reactions, uh, or, uh, or is this going to be the policy that we see going forward? Um, now, of course, the Chinese could conclude that their policy of uh, essentially promoting economic integration as a means to political integration, that that has failed. Um, and if they were to conclude that, then 
we would have to ask whether, what are the odds that they go in a softer direction, as we had uh, uh, Walter suggest would be preferable, and Congressman Yoho as well, or do they move in a much tougher direction? And I think probably most of us would agree that it would be in a much tougher direction, and then we uh, can, I will try to address a little bit later the uh, issue of the potential for use of force, uh, because that is always uh, a possibility. And let's remember that Xi Jinping, for the first time January 2nd last year, uh, included in his statement that was on the 40th anniversary of the message to Taiwan compatriots that the use of force remains um, an option. But I think that China will uh, conclude that its policy has not completely failed and that it's not convenient to draw that judgment at this time. And while I don't want to spend my time going into great detail about the election results, I do want to hit on a couple of points that I think that China is going to pay attention to. Um, this is the second time, of course, that the uh, KMT has put forward a candidate in the presidential election that has not been very competitive. So this is a, this is a, 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 a I would say it's as much a KMT loss as it is a DPP win. And so that is, um, a, the, I'm, I'm going to list the negatives first. You know, can, the, can the KMT field an effective candidate? Can it reinvent itself? Uh, can it regain uh, support? Um, uh, another issue, of course, is the fact that uh, Han Guoyu, when he was running, very, uh, very directly denounced uh, one country, two systems. He also said that if there were peace talks, uh, that uh, the, there would be a precondition if, if he had won. That is, that China would have to uh, renounce the use of force. So people are going to be questioning, I think, whether the KMT is a party that they can even work with going forward. Russell mentioned the, the youth, and I think this is the biggest challenge uh, for China. How do you win over the youth? And the public opinion polls in Taiwan that show growing support for independence and diminished support for reunification are in large part, I think, a youth vote. So the, the demographics operate, I think, very much uh, against uh, uh, Beijing. Um, but so that's sort of some of the, and also the fact I would on the negative side of the ledger is that their united front tactics failed, right? So uh, all of our concerns, and, and we should not let down our guard and be complacent going forward, but nevertheless, the political influence operations um, as, uh, as active as they were appear to have not um, had, uh, had much uh, success. But I really want to um, say a little bit about the positives that uh, that they will draw, the positive lessons. Um, and, and one is, of course, that uh, the KMT candidate uh, actually won more votes than last time. So Han Guoyu got more votes than Eric Zhu. Um, and if we look at the party vote uh, in the legislative UN, uh, both the KMT and the DPP got about the same, and they both got 13 seats in, from their party list. So that's essentially about 33% uh, of the vote. Uh, so what this tells us is that uh, this was an anti-Han vote. Uh, people did trust Tsai Ing-wen, I think, to defend Taiwan's sovereignty. Um, but they were not necessarily embracing uh, the DPP. And this is what the Chinese fear 
is that there will be a you know, growing support uh, for the DPP. The big story is the emergence of more uh, third parties. So last time it was the New Power Party. This time it's the, uh, it's the Taiwan People's Party that is that Koenja created uh, that, had, that got 11.2% of that party list uh, vote. And that is not inconsequential. And as Beijing looks for potential partners going forward, one might think that they will see Koenja as a potential partner, along with, uh, I think, the KMT, because the KMT um, was not rejected um, uh, by, uh, by the people of Taiwan. And so uh, I, th I think that's worth uh, keeping in mind. A few other positives just to um, tick off is that um, uh, I think that uh, despite their concerns about Taiwan, that they, have, they will conclude that ultimately um, she is not uh, a, a going to push for uh, de jure independence. Uh, they fear that she will, particularly unencumbered by the need for re-election. I think that they believe that Lai Chengde, now the vice president, could be a potential conduit for more sort of radical deep green ideas into uh, the government. But at the end of the day, I think that they know that Tsai Ing-wen is not uh, uh, Chen Shui-bian and not going to take the same kind of adventurous moves. I don't think they're that worried about the international community abandoning um, One China. And the reasons, of course, for uh, the, the most important reason for their confidence going forward is their evolving military capabilities. Uh, so uh, there will be voices in China, and there already are. There was an article a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago by Wang Zaisi, who used to be the deputy at the uh, in the Taiwan Affairs Office, essentially saying uh, our our strategy has failed, and we should uh, adopt a, a harder line approach. But I think that this is not going to prevail uh, as their policy. I think Xi Jinping has a lot on his plate: a slowing economy, the ongoing protests in, in Hong Kong tension uh, ongoing with the United States as well. Uh, so I think that Xi Jinping will continue to say unification is inevitable. Of course, Taiwan is part of China. Uh, but I don't think that um, he is going to fundamentally find this is the time to conclude that, uh, that China needs to have a completely uh, new approach. If we go back to his January 2nd speech, um, which I think is uh, important uh, to continue to study, uh, uh, although Xi Jinping is, is pushing to make progress on unification with Taiwan, I personally don't sense that, um, that he is urgent about this. Um, I believe he has not set a hard deadline of 2049, and some of my friends in China say he won't be alive then anyway, so it doesn't matter. But uh, um, I continue to believe that there is no hard deadline uh, that, he, uh, that he has set. So I think we will see that China um, is not going to drop its preconditions uh, for cross-strait dialogue. It will continue to warn Taiwan and the United States not to take provocative moves that challenge um, uh, Chinese sovereignty. Uh, the Chinese, of course, are not going to take what Tsai Ing-wen said in her, in, in her victory speech at face value, but they will pay attention. Uh, and, and I think it's important to note that Tsai Ing-wen talked about her commitment to peaceful, stable, uh, cross-strait relations. She said, we have maintained a non-provocative, non-adventurous attitude that has prevented serious conflict from breaking out in the Taiwan Strait. 
and there are certainly people in, in China who study Taiwan who agree with that. They may not be able to say so publicly, but I actually think that they understand that she has not, uh, for example, pushed for a referendum that relates to uh, independence as, uh, as Chen Shui-bian did. So Xi Jinping is not going to accept Tsai Ing-wen's um, preconditions uh, for, uh, for dialogue uh, that she talked about parity, for example, uh, and accepting the existence of, uh, of both sides. I'm quite confident China is not going to accept the, the existence of the Republic uh, of China. But I personally think um, uh, that the Chinese are, uh, are unlikely uh, to conclude that this is the time uh, to really use military force. The risks are high. Uh, it, it's not just a matter of seizing. Uh, Taiwan. It's a matter of holding it. It's a matter of uh, winning over the people of Taiwan. They could face a massive insurgency. Not too many people talk about that publicly, but look at what happened in Hong Kong. We at least have to ask the question, would the people of Taiwan um, fight for uh, their own uh, sovereignty and independence? And I personally believe uh, that they would. So uh, Xi Jinping continues to talk about China having an important period of strategic opportunity, and I believe that this includes his assessment that peaceful um, uh, development of cross-strait relations is still possible, it's still the right strategy, and that peaceful unification is not unachievable. That said, they will continue, of course, to keep building up uh, their military capabilities so that if the time comes that the leadership decides to use force, the PLA um, will be prepared. But I would argue that having a decisive military advantage isn't the only factor that Xi Jinping will consider in making such a decision. Thank you. That's excellent, Bonnie. Thank you so much. I know we framed it in what's Beijing's takeaway, but I think we can take away a lot of that in terms of just what Taipei can take away from this, what Washington can take away from uh, the election results and uh, parsing uh, Beijing's likely reactions. Now that we've gotten a sense in terms of what Beijing's uh, likely reactions um, are going to be in a review of, of, um, of uh, cross-strait relations in the past four years, I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Sutter to give us a review of U.S.-Taiwan relations, how we got here now and where we may be going um, in the next four years. Thanks very much. Thanks to the sponsors for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. and. Uh, I have a long perspective on this issue, of, uh, and, uh, and so my focus is really what this means for the um, improvement, the remarkable improvement that's been taking place in the U.S. approach toward Taiwan in recent years. Uh, and so this was an element of uncertainty in that process. The results of the Taiwan election were an element of uncertainty. And, and what I see, of course, is that we're having continuity now in Taiwan, and therefore I think this continue, this improvement will continue. I don't see this element uh, causing uh, difficulty in my assessment of it. So what I'd like to do in the remarks that I have, I want to focus on this issue of what this means for the continuation of its positive trajectory in U.S.-Taiwan relations. And what I have to do, first of all, is talk about the manifestations of those, uh, of those improved relations to explain that, and then look at the causes of it and see how the elections has changed that in one degree or another, and give an evaluation, and then look at the four elements of uncertainty uh, going forward. 
So I'm going to do that in, in just a few minutes. It, it, it shouldn't take too long. Uh, the manifestations of this is something that it's, it's not high profile. And that's good, I think. And you'll see that there are benefits for that. And yet it's quite remarkable. Uh, frankly speaking, ladies and gentlemen, I've been looking at U.S.-Taiwan relations uh, since before the Taiwan Relations Act. And I've never seen a period like this. This is the most positive period that I have seen in the relationship. The arms sales relationship just goes right through. These extraordinary diplomatic statements, uh, it was Mr. Pompeo's remarks were referred to, that never happened before. The State Department in past year has, has always been the gatekeeper, the limiter, the one that makes sure that other parts of the government don't do more things vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Whereas today, the State Department is really in the forefront pushing new uh, rhetoric, uh, new support, publicly associating themselves more and more uh, with uh, Taiwan, as Mr. Pompeo did in reaction to the election. Uh, the U.S. support covers the new Indo-Pacific strategy of the United States, the support for Taiwan, working with Taiwan together in the Pacific Islands. Uh, they even have forums in the United Nations. This is something that wasn't done uh, for a long time, and now it is again. And so, uh, and then we have these other uh, movements on the trade area, and uh, the uh, U.S. government is supporting Taiwan uh, in its investment abroad, working in, in conjunction with Taiwan to do these sorts of things. And so, what's the cause of the, what are the causes of this kind of, uh, of actions on the part of the United States? And I think there are several that I would point to. There are four. Basically, first is Beijing's pressures. Beijing's pressures on Taiwan are trying to change the status quo. And the United States doesn't want the status quo to be changed in, in, in a coercive way. And so this is something that uh, obviously gets US policy attention. And then there's Taiwan's location. Taiwan is located in the critical area, dealing with the Indo-Pacific strategy. If you've moved, as the United States government has, to a much more a competitive a type of relationship, a really a rivalry with China in many respects, uh, Taiwan's location looms very large in this kind of Indo-Pacific approach. And then there's Taiwan's democracy and free market economy, which our uh, earlier speakers have talked a lot about. And this is very important for its own sake. But it's also important if you see yourself, as many in the United States now in the government and elsewhere now do, you're in a competition with China uh, for values and uh, rule of law and this sort of thing in world affairs. And Taiwan looms much larger and much more important because of that. Uh, and then you have, of course, the uh, idea that a, re a relationship with Taiwan can serve as a way of imposing costs on China. And there are American officials who feel that way. So these four uh, drivers of the relationship, I think, remain quite strong and have gotten stronger over the last several years with an impact that we have a much more active relationship with uh, Taiwan. Uh, but there are breaks. And this is, I think, where we see the most remarkable change in American policy. The things that were breaks in the past don't matter as much as they used to. Uh, the first one is that you don't want trouble with China. You don't want to move forward with Taiwan because you might have trouble with China. Well, we've had two and a half years now of US uh, affronts toward the Beijing in one area or another. So clearly, that is not that important in American policymaking at this time. 
the idea that Beijing will be upset about these sorts of things. I think that's less important than it was, say, three under the Obama government, under previous governments that were very concerned with a strict interpretation of the one China policy. Uh, I don't think this government is nearly as concerned about that, uh, and for the reasons that they're in this acute rivalry with China. The second point is that the United States didn't want to have uh, trouble uh, with, uh, in the region, that the uh, improved relations with Taiwan would be uh, viewed negatively in the region, uh, in East Asia, among East Asian partners and allies. And this, too, I think, has been overtaken by events, because the US has done all these things in the region that are so detrimental to Beijing. Uh, and, uh, and so this is, uh, this, is not, uh, uh, this is just another element. So the salience of this, it seems to me, is less in American calculating uh, of its policy toward Taiwan. And the third element here is that the past record with the Chen Shui-bian government in particular is that <clears throat> uh, Taiwan used uh, support from the United States. It was seen as doing this, and I think it did do it, for political advantage uh, for themselves. Uh, and would they move in areas that were very irresponsible and provocative vis-a-vis uh, -vis Beijing as a result? So the warning here is don't improve your relations with Taiwan because they'll take advantage of this. Well, Tsai Ing-wen is the person that used to have to clean up after Chen Shui-bian when she came to Washington and tried to reassure people. She's very experienced at this issue, and I personally have tremendous confidence that she's not, she knows how to manage these kinds of issues, and, and obviously will not see the need for uh, uh, exploiting it for domestic uh, reasons in Taiwan. Uh, but there is the fourth reason, the fourth break, and that's still there, and that's very important, and that is Beijing. And Beijing is very powerful, and uh, Bonnie has given us a perspective on this issue, which I think is an excellent perspective, uh, saying that, well, they'll be controlled, uh, but uh, they have great power. And they can do all sorts of things if they want to do vis-a-vis -vis the United States. So that still is a big break in the forward movement in the relationship. So it has to be done carefully. And what I have seen over the past several years is that it's pretty careful. Uh, there's a consensus between the, uh, um, the people in the Congress that deal with Taiwan and the administration officials. There seems, to be a there seems to be a consensus, and I think it's pretty clear that there is, that forward movement is justified and we should move step by step uh, in this regard. Uh, I haven't seen a change in the, uh, in the stated one China policy. Uh, the U.S. has a one China policy. But if you look at the history of U.S. Uh, uh, relationships with Taiwan after the, Taiwan after the normalization with Beijing, it's been interpreted in different ways by different uh, governments. Most governments have been pretty strict in interpreting the one China policy, uh, but several haven't. And, uh, and, the, and I think we're in a phase where we're not being so, we're being flexible, much more flexible about this from the U.S. side uh, than we used to be. And so when I look at the drivers, when I look at the brakes, I say, well, uh, I think the, the forward movement is uh, in, this, in improving relations and doing these various things on defense, on economic issues. We may get to the point of an FTA, as, uh, as Walter Lohman talked about, uh, or uh, on uh, diplomatic issues and so forth, uh, that the relationship will, I think, get ever stronger going forward. <clears throat> 
And, but I think it will remain, I hope it does, within the confines of the American one China policy, which is not the Chinese one China principle. And it can be defined fairly broadly and with, uh, I think, uh, with good results for the United States and for Taiwan. Uh, so outlook looks pretty good, uh, but we have uncertainties. The first one was this election. Will we uh, get elected in Taiwan a leader that wasn't like Tsai Ing-wen? that wanted to move Taiwan's policy in a different direction on issues that, uh, that are important to the United States. And there, I think we could have had a very, uh, this was an uncertainty for me. Well, we don't have that uncertainty anymore. So going forward, I'm pretty confident that this is the way the direction is going to go. But we still have three other uncertainties. One is President Trump. Uh, he's unpredictable. He's avowedly unpredictable. And uh, he might make a deal with China. And, he might, uh, and that deal might involve constraining seriously the relationship with Taiwan. That certainly is something that China would want. Uh, so this is something we have to think about. Uh, and then the other part is that we're going to have an election in this uh, country at the end of this year. And, uh, uh, and there are people in the Democratic Party who worked for Hillary Clinton and others who don't want to have, they have, a, they have that strict interpretation of the one China policy. And uh, Jake Sullivan was, uh, was quoted during the, during the 2016 campaign. He was a, a senior officer in the Clinton campaign, said there will be no change in our Taiwan policy. Well, people like Jake are still around, and, uh, and they could be in the Democratic Party in, in an important <coughs> way going forward in, 2000, uh, in 2020. So we need to watch this sort of thing to see if we would lead to change. My point is that both Donald Trump believe it or not, and, uh, and, the, and the Democratic Party, if they choose to move in this direction, are constrained because of the change in American policy toward China. I think this, uh, this change toward a harder approach, toward a tougher approach, and particularly for, toward a distrust of Beijing's positions. In other words, there's a fundamental sense here that Beijing has tricked the United States. It's, not, it's distrustful and duplicitous. And this kind of sense is strong in the Congress. It's strong in the administration. And so if you make deals with Beijing, do you want to sacrifice Taiwan as a result of this when you don't know really what you're going to get with your deal? And so I think the constraint is going to be pretty serious uh, on Mr. Trump if he chooses to go in this direction and uh, on a future Democratic president if they choose to go in this direction of accommodating Beijing uh, and restricting relations with Taiwan as a result. Uh, but then you have these, uh, the, the third uncertainty that's unresolved, and that is uh, Beijing itself. And here, uh, I just would point out, and maybe I think Bonnie might agree and Mark might agree, I'm not sure, uh, uh, is that, yes, I, I certainly feel the same way that Bonnie did, uh, laid out as far as where uh, Xi Jinping is going to go. But you know, there are an awful lot of experts that don't feel that way. There's a lot of publicity now talking about the dangers of the situation. And these, it comes from the Council of various organizations are, are, are proposing this sort of thing. Rand Corporation analysts and various other analysts are talking about this type of thing, the danger of this situation. And so, uh, so we have to be cognizant of that. Uh, are we right in thinking that it's going to be okay, that the, the status, the, the general approach of Beijing will continue? I personally agree with that, 
And uh, I don't have a, as, a, as a, a, a persuasive argument as Bonnie does. My basic argument is this. The Chinese have been confronted over the past two and a half years by one affront from the United States after another. Xi Jinping is taking the lead in dealing with Donald Trump and in dealing with these affronts and all, cover all sorts of issues. What indeed have they done vis-a-vis -vis the United States? They try to avoid confrontation with the United States. They still do it. So Xi Jinping has this strongman image, but in practice, and this, um, when you're dealing with the United States, you don't see that kind of confrontation. So I say to myself, well, if the US manages its relationship with Taiwan carefully, I can see forward movement where Xi Jinping doesn't want to confront the United States on this issue. Maybe later, but not now. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was superb, Dr. Sutter. Uh, and I think, you know, really um, it highlights the sort of methodical analysis that you bring um, uh, to the question. And, and one could quibble and perhaps argue with the conclusion, but, you, you know, it's hard to uh, argue with the analysis and the, uh, and the, and the methodology that you applied in analyzing the different drivers and brakes and uncertainties, uh, breaking down the various variables. Um, and last, uh, I'd like to turn it over to Mark Stokes, um, whom we've had many discussions on the, uh, the topic that he will address uh, today, but really looking at um, really uh, the history of U.S. Uh, approaches uh, to Taiwan policy and, uh, and where we'd be, uh, we would um, be going uh, in the future. Mark? Thank you very much, uh, Russell. I'll express uh, appreciation also to the uh, Walter and uh, Heritage Foundation and also for you and the audience who've come out today. Uh, first thing on a Monday morning. Um, also, like to uh, take time out just just for a second to express condolences to the families of um, the Republic of China uh, Armed Forces uh, officers and airmen who lost their lives earlier this month in a tragic uh, helicopter uh, crash. <clears throat> um, they made the ultimate sacrifice for the for their own for their own country. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, there's a ceremony that was held today, and I think just uh, acknowledging these sacrifices that they made, I think, is certainly certainly warranted. Um, the, there has been a lot of discussion on, on uh, the outcomes of, of, of the election. Um, the remarks that I, I will give here briefly uh, um, predate the election and would apply just as equally if the um, if uh, the KMT would, would have won the presidency uh, or a majority in the uh, um, in, in the OI. Um, but. With the, with the election uh, behind us now, I, I think from U.S. policy perspective, I mean, it, it's it, there's no bad time really to do a fundamental policy review of our of, of U.S. policy toward Taiwan and cross strait in our our cross strait relations uh, more more generally. And what I mean by policy review, I mean something that that not just a 1993-94 like policy review that looks at sort of uh, peripheral issues, you know, tactical issues, but really something that that goes back and looks at some of the fundamentals. Or a policy that's um, that's endured for um, at least since 1979, if not even earlier, depending on how far you want to go back in, in tracing uh, the origins of a U.S. one-China policy. But um, you know there are, few, in my view, a few good reasons actually to look at some of the fundamentals, um, and it starts with a statement of objective reality. Um, and bear in mind that the statement of objective reality is separate from U.S. policy approaches, but objective reality is that Taiwan, under its current Republic of China constitution, exists as an independent sovereign state. 
Um, and this is sort of removing myself from a US policy perspective and just looking at straight objective reality. Certainly, I think you asked the majority of, of um, uh, citizens on, on Taiwan, I think they certainly would agree. Look at that, the passport, ROC in parentheses, Taiwan. Um, so, and I think this is something that, uh, uh, that people on both sides of the political spectrum, at least uh, you know, within mainstreams on both sides of the political spectrum, whether it's green or blue, would agree on uh, as well. That formulation, by the way, actually comes from Ma Joe. Uh, so this is, um, and, and the Tsai administration uh, the last four years has, and, very, and, and senior uh, officials from the Tsai administration have made similar formulations in, in um, one form or, or another. But three reasons why a fundamental US policy review may be warranted. Number one, again, that's the first one in terms of objective reality. When a US, when a US policy is based upon a narrative, uh, uh, however useful that narrative may be, there's going to be room for fundamental misunderstandings and misconceptions and um, uh, which could lead to conflict down, down the road. Um, so that's one reason why um, in terms of trying to bring US policy in line with this objective reality. Of course, also, status quo is a loaded term. But the status quo in the Taiwan Strait is the existence of two legitimate governments on both sides. You have um, a, a authoritarian regime that would be you know, the former ROC. In my view, the ROC changed fundamentally. Uh, that it has evolved into a vibrant liberal democracy. Um, and on the other side, you have an autocratic People's Republic of China, the PRC. Uh, one could argue, actually, that in terms of legitimacy, the, the, uh, Taiwan actually has more legitimacy in some ways if you believe in the concept of popular sovereignty. Um, but so with this in mind, the second reason I, I think a fundamental review may be warranted is that um, if we're sincere about what, at least wanting to create the conditions, not get involved in the middle, but create the conditions for some sort of um, uh, for some sort of uh, reinvigorated uh, political dialogue on both sides, the U.S. Ha should uh, assume uh, uh, the obligation to at least try to do that by balancing legitimacy on both sides, by even the playing field, so to speak. I don't mean necessarily in a military sense, but just in terms of uh, international political sense. Uh, and it's something that can be done. When you see statements that come out after your arms sales, you'll see you'll be able to give Taiwan more confidence to engage the other side um, and that, things, statements like that. Thirdly, in terms of fundamental U.S. principles and, and, and our interests in our, our principles in terms of uh, um, uh, liberal democracies and encouraging liberal democracies around the world. If you view our one-China policy in a zero-sum game, that you can only have normal uh, diplomatic relations with one side and not the other, then we give legitimacy to the PRC every day. The biggest, their biggest victory ever, I think, in attaining legitimacy uh, was achieved um, uh, probably with the signing of the 1979 communique in which we completely, uh, um, completely uh, withdrew diplomatic relation, uh, uh, recognition from the ROC and then exchanged that and, and turned that over to the PRC. That was fine then, but today we really have to, in my view, look at this. So in terms of US, other U.S. policy options for the future, they're, they're generally, one could quibble about whether or not these are, are all correct, but general four, four schools of thought in terms of U.S. policy. One, uh, the first is accommodation. Uh, accommodation particularly in moving U.S. policy more toward Beijing's formulation of a one-China principle. This may have had some, uh, I would say maybe five or ten years ago, this had some growing, uh, some growing um, uh, uh, support here, here in the D.C. area. I, I think now it's become significantly margin, marginalized, uh, thanks in large part to Xi Jinping and some of his actions in, um, in, in Hong Kong. As well as uh, policies and inflexible and flexible policies toward uh, toward uh, Taiwan. The second second school of thought is by far the dominant one, um, and perhaps rightly so. And that's status quo. I don't mean status quo in the Taiwan Strait context. I don't mean status quo in terms of U.S. Taiwan relations. 
Uh, and, and that status quo, of course, is uh, U.S. policy guided by the Taiwan Relations Act and tempered, to some extent, by three joint communiques. I use the word tempered because the definition of a joint, joint communique is a statement of policy made at that particular time, and but has been uh, reconfirmed by successive administrations. But status quo, um, uh, you know, U.S. policy generally um, you sort of maintain it in, in general as we've done for a, quite a while. Normalization is a third school of thought. I define normalization uh, in, in terms, and that's um, breaking out of a U.S. one China policy and recognition in fairly short order of Taiwan. Taiwan, just uh, in terms of uh, using that, that term, and uh, completely just uh, getting out of U.S. one-China policy. It takes various forms, but um, this certainly has long had uh, um, uh, sway in, in, in the U.S. Uh, to, to some degree or another. The fourth school of thought uh, is one uh, that, go, that could go by many names. Uh, it was actually, a, in some ways, a dominant uh, line of thinking uh, in the, let's say, 19, late 1950s, 1960s, perhaps all the way up to 1977. And that and would we'll go by different names. One could use the term a US, one China, two governments policy. It could be uh, referred to as a soft balancing approach. But th this sort of, um, the fourth option is one in which one doesn't necessarily question a one, US, one policy or doesn't challenge that, but still does more to move toward a more normal, stable, and constructive relationship with Taiwan as a government. Staying free, staying clear of the uh, sovereignty issue, but focusing more on balancing legitimacy. So it's legitimacy over sovereignty. So these are the four, so the four schools of thought. Um, so whether or not, um, that in my view, that, that could guide U.S. policy if there ever was to be a major uh, review. But other things we just throw out there in terms of uh, uh, last minute uh, things to consider, in my, in my view, is I think there's serious consideration should be uh, given to a joint statement between uh, U.S. senior U.S. policymakers and those on, on Taiwan, the ROC government. Uh, when I say joint statement, one could use the word joint communique. Uh, that's a loaded term, because automatically the thought goes back to, let's say, for example, a joint communique between U.S. PRC communique in 1972. Theoretically, I would call note that the U.S. had a one-China policy in 1972, uh, yet we still believe that a joint communique would not violate or be consistent with a one-China policy. Of course, then we recognize the ROC. We didn't de-recognize the ROC until 1979, formally. But um, a joint communique, or let's go back to that term, a joint statement between the two sides. Why do we have a joint statement or a joint communique with any government around the world? There are fundamental principles involved with that. I'm not aware. Uh, uh, there's a lot of examples, but a joint statement allows you to align policies to be able to come up with a fundamental interest, make them public so you can communicate to your own constituencies, both in the United States and on Taiwan. So th that's, um, that's one. Number two, I would say cons uh, considering the dual hatting of chairman of AIT uh, as either an assistant secretary level or maybe even undersecretary level. Um, as dual hatting meaning put it on the website and, they, and that individual, he, he or she, would be a, a chairperson. Um, it would be, in my view, consistent with the One China Policy, consistent with um, um, with uh, uh, Taiwan Relations Act. Along those lines, why not make the AIT director, AIT Taipei director, a Senate-approved position? Um, that's just another another consideration. Um, other other things in terms of looking at the fundamental structure of U.S.-Taiwan relations, uh, in terms of our, the different uh, uh, forms that go on. There's the, um, of course, the GCTF, and I'm not going to try to break that out. Uh, Global cooperation that, uh, and training, uh, training framework. Th 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 uh, thank you, we have that. But uh, on the security side, we have Monterey talks, we have the uh, defense, uh, we have the um, uh, DRTs, defense review talks. 
But there's some other, I think, important bilateral uh, um, committees reforms that, that should be considered. For example, if we did make the um, AIT chair, chairman or chairperson uh, uh, dual-headed as either assistant secretary or undersecretary, maybe consider modeling a, a bilateral committee or some sort of a high-level mechanism uh, on what we had with Beijing uh, with a high-level mechanism on people-to-people -people talks. It's, it, to me, it's kind of uh, interesting because that was just built for something that we have with Taiwan, people-to-people -people exchanges, cultural and education uh, exchanges, something to be able to bring everything that we do already have going on in sort of one, uh, in, into one sort of uh, um, uh, forum and then raise that to a higher level to get the attention that it deserves. Um, along these lines, there are other, other key issues in terms of that we support of U.S. interests and those of Taiwan, things like a senior bilateral committee on looking at supply chain security and defense industrial cooperation. Um, and I can uh, address details on uh, this uh, uh, as needed. Um, at the track, you know, at, in, at the, uh, um, uh, at the uh, civil society level, in my view, it is, um, makes a lot of sense, in my view, to establish and, uh, and, and populate uh, and energize a national committee on U.S.-Taiwan relations. Mo again, modeled in part after the National Committee on U.S.-China relations that was established, I believe, in 1965 or 1966. So that's another uh, uh, concept. And then uh, finally, um, in, in, in my view, there should be an expansion, again, at the um, at civil society level of um, uh, trilateral dialogues. Um, there's plenty that go on with Japan between the U.S., uh, Taiwan and Japan, uh, quite a few, uh, maybe at least three or a half dozen, but start looking at other potential partners. I would argue the first step would be the Philippines. Um, why the Philippines? Because they have an election coming up, I believe, in 20, just in, in another year and a half or, or, or two, and election integrity is going to be very important. And I think uh, at the civil society level, there could be a lot can be learned from Taiwan's experience, and also by integrating Taiwan into Northeast Asia uh, in terms of what we already have going on with Japan. Uh, in Taiwan and uh, in, in the United States. So with that, turn it back over to you, Russell. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Mark, as always, very forward-looking and um, a lot of ideas uh, that we can certainly discuss in the Q&A. Uh, we have about 12 minutes um, for uh, Q&A. Um, will, there will be a mic going around, and so do keep your hand up. Uh, I would like to exercise the moderator's prerogative at this point to just tee out a couple of questions before we get to the audience Q&A. Um, but this, I want to pick up on something Bonnie pick, um, um, mentioned, and that is you basically provide an assessment that you, um, you know, the likely reaction that Beijing will have. Um, what do you think will it take for Beijing to really fundamentally reassess its Taiwan policy? I think we've struggled with this, and I think we ask this question all the time, why isn't Beijing doing this? What will it take, do you think? Uh, for really Beijing to understand about the situation and perhaps change course. Well, one thing that I didn't talk about is um, the linkage between this issue and domestic politics in uh, in Beijing. And I think there is a perception that this issue is related to uh, legitimacy of the party and Xi Jinping personally. So I think that's fundamentally what has to be addressed, that there cannot be, I think, a fundamental rethink of this uh, policy toward Taiwan in a more positive direction, as long as there is what I believe this framework in Beijing, in the domestic political situation, that the leader of the party is very vulnerable on this issue. This, this is a sovereignty claim. So I would go so far as to say that you really need to have radical change uh, in the 
political system, <laughs> if you will. Um, and many people argue that uh, that even if there if there was democracy uh, in mainland China, that there might still be a sort of rabid sense of ownership and uh, toward Taiwan, that this might not necessarily lead to more tolerance uh, toward the idea of self-determination uh, mm -hmm. uh, in Taiwan. So I think even that is a, is a question mark, So, which is one of the reasons why I'm uh, pessimistic. Doctor, sir, do you, do, you, do you have a sort of a sense in terms of what do you think might, you know? Um, yeah, I, you're asking, um, will, what will make uh, Beijing be nice toward Taiwan? Is it? <laughs> yeah, I, that, yeah. I'm more, I'm more worried about the opposite. Uh, so I think that's much more likely than than what you're asking for, Russell. Yes. I, they, I think we can look at it that way anyway. Uh, the other point that you brought up, uh, Bonnie, with, and I think this is an important one, and I, want, I do want to uh, you know, uh, bring this up in the, the, the Q&A, is what, do you, what is the future of the KMT at this point? Uh, and I think that's really important. There, there is a need for a you know, responsible opposition party in Taiwan, and, um, and, uh, and you know, after having uh, lost this election um, uh, by quite a significant margin, um, you know, what do you think? is going to happen within that party and uh, the future of that party? I think it's a very important question. Um, uh, as I said, the KMT did well in the party list in the OY. They um, actually increased by three seats overall. Uh, so, uh, but I think the, the, the real question is whether the party itself reforms, uh, whether some of these the older generation people move aside, uh, make way for the younger generation, whether they try to redefine themselves as an, as an indigenous party. Um, there are younger people I've talked to in the KMT that would like to be the Taiwan Guomindang, not the China Guomindang. That's, that, that may be a bridge too far in the, in the immediate future. Uh, but they have to figure out their messaging um, and their policies. And of course, fundamentally have to uh, examine what their policy is going to be going forward towards Beijing. Are they simply going to stick to the 1992 consensus, um, or, or, or are they going to, uh, uh, to come up with, with new policies? And if, if they do not revise their policies going forward, then I doubt that, they're, uh, that they're, they will be able to win, win support. So uh, the most important thing is party reform and generational change. Okay. All right. Okay, with that, I'll open it up for the, uh, for the audience Q&A. Uh, please wait for, keep your hands up, wait for the mic, uh, make sure to um, state your name and your affiliation, and please try to keep your comments or questions uh, brief. All right, uh, in the middle, over here in the center, uh, the lady uh, in the white. <laughs> Maybe just pass the microphone down and, yeah. Uh, Stacy Xu from Taiwan Central News Agency. Bonnie, you mentioned you predict that Beijing is more likely to go for a more tougher direction. Does that mean that we are going to see a continuation of its current tactics, like poaching Taiwan's diplomatic allies, limiting Chinese tourists to Taiwan, or uh, are we going to see like new tactics because the existing one uh, apparently does not really work in China's favor? Thank you. Well, thank you for the question and giving me an opportunity to elaborate on this because I probably didn't stress enough in my introductory uh, comments. Uh, that I do think that China is going to ratchet up pressure on Taiwan. Uh, they have a, a, an ever-growing toolbox. Um, I think one of the articles in Global Times over the weekend even mentioned the fact that there's 
big policy toolbox and things that they can do. Um, we have seen a great deal in the military and diplomatic area. Uh, Taiwan has 15 diplomatic allies remaining. I would not be surprised um, if they continue to go after those and maybe even one um, in the near term. I note that uh, uh, Taiwan's foreign minister, as we speak, is traveling in Guatemala, um, uh, perhaps, and I'm just, I don't know this for a fact, but I wonder if this reflects concern that Beijing is going to move very quickly to steal another one of Taiwan's diplomatic partners. Um, so I think they will continue to do that. Um, uh, there's much more they can do in the, uh, in the military realm. Uh, uh, the most, one of the most notable things is, uh, in addition to um, flying and, and, and operating uh, the Navy sort of around Taiwan was the March 31st crossing of the Taiwan Strait, the first time really in 20 years that there was a deep incursion across the, the center line. Uh, I would look to the uh, economic sphere. Uh, you know, uh, Beijing has not done very much to harm uh, Taiwan's economy, with the really the exception of uh, cutting the tourists. And uh, Taiwan has shown an ability to attract tourists from other countries. But if China believes that poor economic performance will help prevent the DPP from staying in power going forward, then there are other things they can do to try to damage Taiwan's economy. And that also goes to the issue of what Walter talked about earlier, how strongly would they oppose a US-Taiwan FTA. We have not seen Taiwan sign any new free trade agreements, of course, since Ma Ying-jeou was in power and signed them with Singapore and New Zealand. Gentleman over there in a the hat. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, Sean Ling from WQER Radio. So the anti-infiltration law actually passed uh, early January in Taiwan. So just wondering uh, if Handel can share your observation on what kind of impact this will be to uh, what occur to Taiwan's politics, especially for KMT. Will it cause additional fracture uh, inside the KMT or also it will, will it impact uh, Chinese Communist Party's operation inside Taiwan? the Anti-Infiltration Act and its implications for um, enforcement and, and implementation. Um, anyone want to take that question? Actually, I, I would see to uh, interested in what, what you, both you have to say. Um, I, I, I tend to focus more on U.S. policy rather than looking at, looking mm -hmm. at implications within Taiwan itself. Well, I think without getting into the substance of the legislation itself, which I haven't read, um, I just um, but uh, I think uh, there are, of course, concerns within the opposition party uh, that the legislation would target such exchanges uh, that it considers to be legitimate cross-trade exchanges. Um, uh, however um, dubious such activities may be, um, I think the key will be in enforcement uh, of any legislation, and so that uh, and it appears at least from public reporting about the legislation that it will at least provide uh, more enforcement mechanisms uh, and potential deterrence by uh, increasing fines and even imprisonment uh, of violations of that act and uh, and so um, and so I think again I think the key will be in enforcement uh, and that will determine uh, the uh, uh, how uh, effective uh, such legislation will be um, going forward. So. Uh, okay, from over here, Peter Humphrey. 
I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. Uh, two short questions about slicing the salami a bit. Is it really necessary for lower-level uh, foreign service officers to resign from the foreign service before they get posted to Taiwan? I guess that's a question for you, Bonnie. And second of all, I'm very concerned about the fact that Taiwan represents a gap in network systems. Uh, is there a way at all that we could integrate Taiwan's radars with our radars and Japan's radars? Is there any way we can track a submarine coming from Bohai Bay to Hainan Island uh, with a continuous acoustic profile rather than this huge interruption that is represented by Taiwan? Mill-mill interaction question. On your latter question, I'm sure that Mark will um, have some views. Uh, the, 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 uh, these are uh, really more than technical questions. They're questions of political will. I mean, clearly, if we wanted to network uh, systems like, uh, you know, the Pac-3 radars in, in Taiwan with other missile defense capabilities in the region, we could do that. Uh, so, I mean, these are these are always, I think, uh, political questions. On your your first question, there's. A, a long-standing set of things that the United States has done as a matter of practice um, that uh, are not things that were ever written into law. And of course, one of those is uh, what foreign service officers have to do. And for a time, military officers had to retire and they, they temporarily, you know, but they no longer do. Uh, Tecro and other officials from Taiwan are, are really still not able to go on a regular basis uh, into the State Department. These are all things that could be easily changed, right? So it's, it, they're simply a matter of practice. They're not a matter of law. And um, I think that there is a strong argument to be made for why they, uh, no, they, they should no longer uh, be adhered to. Uh, these are things that hamper our ability to implement our policies and and do what is necessary for American interests. So um, it, there, there's a long list of things that are in that category. So I would I would share your, your views on that. I, I agree with Bonnie. Um, the, the restrictions that we have are, are, are self-imposed. And they include, in the past, I, I think we change the rules on, on forcing foreign service officers to resign, or certainly on the, I think, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, yeah. but um, <laughs> but in general, in the U.S. active duty officers, for example, there used to be uh, restrictions on uh, active duty officers being assigned AIT. That certainly has, has, has changed. Yeah. I think uh, you're probably right. It uh, probably has changed. Um, so, but there are still plenty of restrictions uh, that are there. and. Uh, and, and these restrictions generally are by are are are, are that they are imposed based upon some arbitrary sense of definition of what is official, what's unofficial. But in, in my view, if we say it's unofficial, even if we had a senior, a senior level visit, you know, a secretary visit or undersecretary visit to Taiwan, if we say it's unofficial, then by George, it's unofficial. Then, um, so I, I would uh, point that out. Um, or if we had a um, ROC Minister of Foreign Affairs that visits the United States, then if it's we say it's unofficial, it's unofficial. Um, on the on the um, uh, network systems, uh, that goes back to the same issue. I, the restrictions on this are per se uh, how you define official relations or not. Would having a shared uh, uh, a common operational picture uh, on on a radar picture, uh, air surveillance picture, would that be considered an official relationship? Um, I don't think so. Um, you can you can 
you can finagle and you can uh, massage it any way you like. Same thing uh, for the uh, undersea undersea picture. Uh, same thing in general. There are all thing, kinds of things we, we would do, need to do. I would offer one last comment here, uh, and that one of the things in the near term, I, I, I'm, um, I think there should be a lot more emphasis right now on the issue of readiness. Basically, is the U.S. just in case, and the unlikely chance there is some sort of use of force, the U.S. should be really doing a close look about its ability to respond to use of force and other forms of coercion, as called out in the Taiwan Relations Act. People generally focus on provision of necessary defense article services, but maintaining the capacity to resist use of force is in the TRA, and should really be looking at our readiness to be able to uh, respond to use of force. And also, of course, working with Taiwan to enhance their readiness. So this is an issue that really warrants significant attention, I would say, just over the next six months. Okay. Um, I mean, with that, we actually did uh, run out of time. Um, but we do have, uh, I believe, lunch outside. And uh, please feel free to engage the speakers if they are going to be around, uh, if you're able to um, catch them before they, <laughs> they run off. Um, but thank you uh, again, Walter uh, and the Heritage Foundation, for co-hosting co today's event uh, with GTI. Um, and please stay uh, tuned to further events uh, that we have in store for the rest of the year. Um, thank you all, uh, and please join me in thanking our panelists.